Section 20 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Pythian Games at Delphi, B.C. 585, by George Grote. Part One. Among the leading features of Greek life, especially those belonging to its religious customs and observances, none are more characteristic and none possess a more attractive interest for the modern reader and student than the peculiar festivals which it was their practice to hold. The four great national festivals or games were the Olympic, held every four years in honor of Zeus, on the banks of the Alpheus and Elis, the Pythian, celebrated once in four years, in honor of Apollo, at Delphi, the Isthmian, held every two years, at the Isthmian Sanctuary, in the Isthmus of Corinth, in honor of Poseidon, Neptune, and the Nemean, celebrated at Nemea, in the second and fourth year of each Olympiad, in honor of the Nemean Juno. With regard to the influence of these games or festivals upon the political and social life of Greece, much has been written by historians and special students of the Grecian states. While the celebrations do not appear to have accomplished much for the political union of Greece, they are to be credited with marked beneficial effects in the promotion of a pan-Hellenic spirit, which, if it failed to produce such a union of the Greek race, nevertheless quickened and strengthened the common feeling of family relationship. Thus a sense of their identical origin and racial traits was kept alive, and the tendencies of Greek development and culture preserved their essential character and distinction. By means of these periodical gatherings, representing all parts of the Greek world, not only was friendly competition in every field of talent and performance secured, but even trade and commerce found, through them, new channels of activity. So in various ways, the national games proved a source of fresh energy and broader enterprise among the various branches of the Grecian people. The particular character and significance of the Pythian Games at Delphi and their relation to the other national festivals form an interesting subject for study in connection with the general history of Greece. What are called the Olympic, Pythian, Nemean, and Isthmian Games, the four most conspicuous amid many others analogous, were in reality great religious festivals. For the gods then gave their special sanction, name, and presence to recreative meetings, the closest association then prevailed between the feelings of common worship and the sympathy in common amusement. Though this association is now no longer recognized, it is nevertheless essential that we should keep it fully before us if we desire to understand the life and proceedings of the Greek. To Herodotus and his contemporaries, these great festivals, then frequented by crowds from every part of Greece, were of overwhelming importance and interest. Yet, they had once been purely local, attracting no visitors except from a very narrow neighborhood. In the Homeric poems, much is said about the common gods, and about special places consecrated to and occupied by several of them. The chiefs celebrate funeral games in honor of a deceased father, which are visited by competitors from different parts of Greece, but nothing appears to manifest public or town festivals open to Grecian visitors generally and though the rocky pytho with its temple stands out in the Iliad as a place both venerated and rich, the Pythian games, under the superintendence of the Amphictyons, with continuous enrollment of victors and a pan-Hellenic reputation, 
do not begin until after the Sacred War in the 48th Olympiad, or B.C. 586. The Olympic Games, more conspicuous than the Pythian as well as considerably older, are also remarkable on another ground, inasmuch as they supplied historical computers with the oldest backward record of continuous time. It was in the year B.C. 776 that the Eleans inscribed the name of their countryman Corobus as victor in the competition of runners, and that they began the practice of inscribing in like manner in each Olympic or fifth recurring year the name of the runner who won the prize. Even for a long time after this, however, the Olympic Games seem to have remained a local festival, the prize being uniformly carried off at the first twelve Olympiads by some competitor either of Elis or its immediate neighborhood. The Nemean and Isthmian Games did not become notorious or frequented until later even than the Pythian. Solon, in his legislation, proclaimed the large reward of 500 drams for every Athenian who gained an Olympic prize, and the lower sum of 100 drams for an Isthmiac prize. He counts the former as Panhellenic rank and renown, an ornament even to the city of which the victor was a member, the latter as partial and confined to the neighborhood. Of the beginnings of these great solemnities we cannot presume to speak except in mythical language. We know them only in their comparative maturity. But the habit of common sacrifice on a small scale and between near neighbors is a part of the earliest habits of Greece. The sentiment of fraternity between two tribes or villages first manifested itself by sending a sacred legation or theoria to offer sacrifices to each other's festivals and to partake in the recreations which followed, thus establishing a truce with solemn guarantee and bringing themselves into direct connection each with the god of the other under his appropriate local surname. The Pacific communion so fostered and the increased assurance of intercourse as Greece gradually emerged from the turbulence and pugnacity of the heroic age operated especially in extending the range of this ancient habit. The village festivals became town festivals, largely frequented by the citizens of other towns, and sometimes with special invitations sent round to attract theors from every Hellenic community, and thus these once humble assemblages gradually swelled into the pomp and immense confluence of the Olympic and Pythian games. The city administering such holy ceremonies enjoyed inviolability of territory during the month of their occurrence, being itself under obligation at that time to refrain from all aggression, as well as to notify by heralds the commencement of the truce to all other cities not in avowed hostility with it. Elis imposed heavy fines upon other towns, even on the powerful Lacedaemon, for violation of the Olympic truce, on pain of exclusion from the festival in case of non-payment. Sometimes this tendency to religious fraternity took a form called an amphictyony, different from the common festival. A certain number of towns entered into an exclusive religious partnership for the celebration of sacrifices periodically to the god of a particular temple, which was supposed to be the common property and under the common protection of all, though one of the number was often named as permanent administrator, while all other Greeks were excluded. That there were many religious partnerships of this sort, which have never acquired a place in history among the early Grecian villages, we may perhaps gather from the etymology of the word amphictyons, designating residents around or neighbors considered in the point of view of fellow religionists, as well as from the indications preserved to us in reference to various parts of the country. Thus there was an amphictyony of seven cities at the holy island of Caloria, close to the harbor of Trozen, 
Hermione, Epidaurus, Aegina, Athens, Prassiae, Nauplia, and Orchomenus jointly maintained the temple and sanctuary of Poseidon in that island, with which it would seem that the city of Trozen, though close at hand, had no connection, meeting there at stated periods to offer formal sacrifices. These seven cities, indeed, were not immediate neighbors, but the specialty and exclusiveness of their interest in the temple is seen from the fact that when the Argeans took Nauplia, they adopted and fulfilled these religious obligations on behalf of the prior inhabitants. So also did the Lacedaemonians when they had captured Prassiae. Again in Triphylia, situated between the Pisitid and Messenia in the western part of Peloponnesus, there was a similar religious meeting and partnership of the Triphylians on Cape Samicon at the temple of the Simeon Poseidon. Here the inhabitants of Machiston were entrusted with the details of superintendence, as well as with a duty of notifying beforehand the exact time of meeting, a precaution essential amidst the diversities and irregularities of the Greek calendar, and also of proclaiming what was called the Simeon Truce, a temporary abstinence from hostilities which bound all Triphylians during the holy period. This latter custom discloses the salutary influence of such institutions in presenting to men's minds a common object of reverence, common duties and common enjoyments, thus generating sympathies and feelings of mutual obligation amid petty communities not less fierce than suspicious. So, too, the twelve chief Ionic cities in and near Asia Minor had their pan-Ionic amphictyony peculiar to themselves. The six Doric cities in and near the southern corner of that peninsula combined for the like purpose at the temple of the Triopian Apollo, and the feeling of special partnership is here particularly illustrated by the fact that Halicarnassus, one of the six, was formally extruded by the remaining five in consequence of a violation of the rules. There was also an Amphictyonic union at Onchestus in Boeotia, in the venerated grove and temple at Poseidon, of whom it consisted we are not informed. There are some specimens of the sort of special religious conventions and assemblies which seem to have been frequent throughout Greece, nor ought we omit those religious meetings and sacrifices which were common to all members of one Hellenic subdivision, such as the Panboesia to all Boeotians, celebrated at the temple of the Ionian Athena near Coronea, the common observances rendered to the temple of Apollo Pythias at Argos by all those neighboring towns which had once been attached by this religious thread to the Argean, the similar periodical ceremonies frequented by all who bore the Achaean or Aetolian name, and the splendid and exhilarating festivals so favorable to the diffusion of the early Grecian poetry, which brought all Ionians at stated intervals to the sacred island of Delos. This latter class of festivals agreed with the Amphictyony in being of a special and exclusive character, not open to all Greeks. But there was one among these many Amphictyonies, which, though starting from the smallest beginnings, gradually expanded into so comprehensive a character, had acquired so marked a predominance over the rest, as to be called the Amphictyonic Assembly, and even to have been mistaken by some authors for a sort of federal Hellenic diet. Twelve sub-races out of the number which made up entire Hellas belonged to this ancient Amphictyony, the meetings of which were held twice in every year, in spring at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, in autumn at Thermopylae, in the sacred precinct of Demeter Amphictyonis. Sacred deputies, including a chief called the Hieromnemon and subordinates called the Pelagoro, attended these meetings from each of the twelve races. 
a crowd of volunteers seem to have accompanied them for purposes of sacrifice trade or enjoyment their special and most important function consisted in watching over the delphian temple in which all the twelve sub-races had a joint interest and it was the immense wealth and national ascendancy of this temple which enhanced to so great a pitch the dignity of its acknowledged administrators the twelve constituent members were as follows thessalians boeotians dorians ionians perhabians magnetes locrians oteians achaeans phocians dolopes and malians all are counted as races if we treat the hellenes as a race we must call them sub-races no mention being made of cities all count equally in respect to voting two votes being given by the deputies from each of the twelve moreover we are told that in determining the deputies to be sent or the manner in which the votes of each race should be given the powerful athens sparta and thebes had no more influence than the humblest ionian dorian a boeotian city this latter fact is distinctly stated by Aeschines, himself a pylagor sent to delphi by athens and so doubtless the theory of the case stood the votes of the ionic races counted for neither more nor less than two whether given by deputies from Athens, or from the small towns of Erythrae and Prien, and in like manner the Dorian votes were as good in the division when given by deputies from Boeon and Cintinion in the little territory of Doris, as if the men delivering them had been Spartans. But there can be as little question that in practice the little Ionic cities and the little Doric cities pretended to no share in the Amphictyonic deliberations as the ionic vote came to be substantially the vote of athens so if sparta was ever obstructed in the management of the doric vote it must have been by powerful doric cities like argos or corinth not by the insignificant towns of doris but the theory of amphictyonic suffrage as laid down by Aeschines, however little realized in practice during his day is important inasmuch as it shows in full evidence the primitive and original constitution the first establishment of the Amphictyonic Convocation dates from a time when all the twelve members were on a footing of equal independence, and when there were no overwhelming cities such as Sparta and Athens to cast in the shade the humbler members. When Sparta was only one Doric city and Athens only one Ionic city, among various others of consideration not much inferior. There are also other proofs which show the high antiquity of this Amphictyonic Convocation. Aeschines gives us an extract from the oath which had been taken by the sacred deputies who attended on behalf of their respective races ever since its first establishment, and which still apparently continued to be taken in his day. The antique simplicity of this oath, and of the conditions to which the members bind themselves, betrays the early age in which it originated, as well as the humble resources of those towns to which it was applied. We will not destroy any Amphictyonic town, we will not cut off any Amphictyonic town from running water. Such are the two prominent obligations which Aeschines specifies out of the old oath. The second of the two carries us back to the simplest state of society, and to towns of the smallest size, when the maidens went out with their basins to fetch water from the spring, like the daughters of Celios at Eleusis, or those of Athens from the fountain Calero. We may even conceive that the special mention of this detail in the covenant between the twelve races is borrowed literally from agreements still earlier among the villages or little towns in which the members of each race were distributed. At any rate, 
it proves satisfactorily the very ancient date to which the commencement of the Amphictyonic convocations must be referred. The belief of Ischenes, perhaps also the belief general in his time, was that it commenced simultaneously with the first foundation of the Delphian temple, an event of which we have no historical knowledge, but there seems reason to suppose that its original establishment is connected with Thermopylae and Demeter Amphictyonia rather than with Delphi and Apollo. The special surname by which Demeter and her temple at Thermopylae was known, the temple of the hero Amphictyon, which stood at its side, the word Pyloa, which obtained footing in the language to designate the half-yearly meeting of the deputies both at Thermopylae and at Delphi, these indications point to Thermopylae, the real central point for all the twelve, as the primary place of meeting, and to the Delphian half-year as something secondary and superadded. On such a matter, however, we cannot go beyond a conjecture. The hero Amphictyon, whose temple stood at Thermopylae, passed in mythical genealogy for the brother of Helen. And it may be affirmed with truth that the habit of forming Amphictyonic unions and of frequenting each other's religious festivals was the great means of creating and fostering the primitive feeling of brotherhood among the children of Helen in those early times when rudeness, insecurity, and pugnacity did so much to isolate them. A certain number of salutary habits and sentiments, such as that which the Amphictyonic oath embodies in regard to abstinence from injury as well as to mutual protection, gradually found their way into men's minds. The obligations thus brought into play acquired a substantive efficacy of their own, and the religious feeling which always remained connected with them came afterward to be only one out of many complex agencies by which the later historical Greek was moved. Athens and Sparta, in the days of their might, and the inferior cities in relation to them, played each their own political game, in which religious considerations will be found to bear only a subordinate part. The special function of the Amphictyonic Council, so far as we know it, consisted in watching over the safety, the interests, and the treasures of the Delphian temple. If any one shall plunder the property of the god, or shall be cognizant thereof, or shall take treacherous counsel against the things in the temple, we will punish him with foot and hand and voice, and by every means in our power. So ran the old Amphictyonic oath, with an energetic imprecation attached to it. And there are some examples in which the council constitutes its functions so largely as to receive and adjudicate upon complaints against entire cities for offenses against the religious and patriotic sentiment of the Greeks generally. But for the most part its interference relates directly to the Delphian temple. The earliest case in which it is brought to our view is the sacred war against Syra in the 46th Olympiad or BC 595, conducted by Eurylychus the Thessalian and Clisthenes of Sicyon, and proposed by Solon of Athens. We find the Amphictyons also about half a century afterward undertaking the duty of collecting subscriptions throughout the Hellenic world, and making the contract with the Alcmaeonids for rebuilding the temple after a conflagration. But the influence of this council is essentially of a fluctuating and intermittent character. Sometimes it appears forward to decide, and its decisions command respect, but such occasions are rare, taking the general course of known Grecian history, while there are other occasions, and those too especially affecting the Delphian temple, on which we are surprised to find nothing said about it. In the long and perturbed period which Thucydides describes, 
He never once mentions the Amphictyons, though the temple and the safety of its treasures form the repeated subject as well of dispute as of express stipulation between Athens and Sparta. Moreover, among the twelve constituent members of the council we find three, the Perhabians, the Magnetes, and the Achaeans of Phthia, who were not even independent, but subject to the Thessalians, so that its meetings, when they were not matters of mere form, probably expressed only the feelings of the three or four leading members. When one or more of these great powers had a party purpose to accomplish against others, when Philip of Macedon wished to extrude one of the members in order to procure admission for himself, it became convenient to turn this ancient form into a serious reality, and we shall see the Athenian Eschines providing a pretext for Philip to meddle in favor of the minor Boeotian cities against Thebes, by alleging that these cities were under the protection of the old Amphictyonic oath. It is thus that we have to consider the council as an element in Grecian affairs, an ancient institution, one among many instances of the primitive habit of religious fraternization, but wider and more comprehensive than the rest. At first purely religious, then religious and political at once, lastly more the latter than the former highly valuable in the infancy, but unsuited to the maturity of Greece, and called into real working only on rare occasions when its efficiency happened to fall in with the views of Athens, Thebes, or the King of Macedon. In such special moments it shines with a transient light, which affords a partial pretense for the imposing title bestowed on it by Cicero, Commune Graciae Concilium, but we should completely misinterpret Grecian history if we regarded it as a federal council habitually directed or habitually obeyed. Had there existed any such commune concilium of tolerable wisdom and patriotism, and had the tendencies of the Hellenic mind been capable of adapting themselves to it, the whole course of later Grecian history would probably have been altered. The Macedonian kings would have remained only as respectable neighbors, borrowing civilization from Greece and expending their military energies upon Thracians and Illyrians, while united Hellas might even have maintained her own territory against the conquering legions of Rome. The twelve constituent Amphictyonic races remained unchanged until the sacred war against the Phocians, B.C. 355, after which, though the number twelve was continued, the Phocians were disfranchised and their votes transferred to Philip of Macedon. It has been already mentioned that these twelve did not exhaust the whole of Hellas. Arcadians, Aeleans, Pisans, Minye, Dryopes, Aetolians, all genuine Hellenes, are not comprehended in it. But all of them had a right to make use of the Temple of Delphi and to contend in the Pythian and Olympic Games. The Pythian Games, celebrated near Delphi, were under the superintendence of the Amphictyons or of some acting magistrate chosen by and presumed to represent them. Like the Olympic Games, they came round every four years, the interval between one celebration and another being four complete years, which the Greeks called a pentoteris. The Isthmian and Nemean Games recurred every two years. In its first humble form, a competition among bards to sing a hymn in praise of Apollo, this festival was doubtless of immemorial antiquity, but the first extension of it into Panhellenic notoriety, as I have already remarked, the first multiplication of the subjects of competition, and the first introduction of a continuous record of the conquerors, date only from the time when it came under the presidency of the Amphictyon, at the close of the sacred war against Syrah. 
What is called the First Pythian Contest coincides with the third year of the 48th Olympiad, or B.C. 585. From that period forward, the games become crowded and celebrated, but the date just named, nearly two centuries after the First Olympiad, is a proof that the habit of periodical frequentation of festivals, by numbers and from distant parts, grew up but slowly in the Grecian world. The foundation of the Temple of Delphi itself reaches far beyond all historical knowledge, forming one of the aboriginal institutions of Hellas. It is a sanctified and wealthy place even in the Iliad. The legislation of Lycurgus at Sparta is introduced under its auspices, and the earliest Grecian colonies, those of Sicily and Italy in the 8th century BC, are established in consonance with its mandate. Delphi and Dodona appear, in the most ancient circumstances of Greece, as universally venerated oracles and sanctuaries, and Delphi not only receives honors and donations, but also answers questions from Lydians, Phrygians, Etruscans, Romans, etc. It is not exclusively Hellenic. One of the valuable services which a Greek looked for from this and other great religious establishments was that it should resolve his doubts in cases of perplexity that it should advise him whether to begin a new or to persist in an old project, that it should foretell what would be his fate under given circumstances, and inform him, if suffering under distress, on what conditions the gods would grant him relief. The three priestesses of Dodona with their venerable oak, and the priestess of Delphi sitting on her tripod under the influence of a certain gas or vapor exhaling from the rock, were alike competent to determine these difficult points and we shall have constant occasion to notice in this history with what complete faith both the question was put and the answer treasured up, what serious influence it often exercised upon both public and private proceeding. The hexameter verses in which the Pythian priestess delivered herself were indeed often so equivocal or unintelligible that the most serious believer, with all anxiety to interpret and obey them, often found himself ruined by the result. Yet the general faith in the oracle was in no way shaken by such painful experience, for as the unfortunate issue always admitted of being explained by two hypotheses, either that the god had spoken falsely, or that his meaning had not been correctly understood, no man of genuine piety ever hesitated to adopt the latter. There were many other oracles throughout Greece besides Delphi and Dodona. Apollo was open to the inquiries of the faithful at Toan in Boeotia, at Abay in Phocis, at Branchidae near Miletus, at Ptara in Lycia, and other places. In like manner, Zeus gave answers at Olympia, Poseidon at Teneris, Amphiaris at Thebes, Amphilochus at Malus, etc. And this habit of consulting the oracle formed part of the still more general tendency of the Greek mind to undertake no enterprise without having first ascertained how the gods viewed it, and what measures they were likely to take. Sacrifices were offered, and the interior of the victim carefully examined, with the same intent, omens, prodigies, unlooked-for coincidences, casual expressions, etc., were all construed as significant of the divine will. To sacrifice with a view to this or that undertaking, or to consult the oracle with the same view, are familiar expressions embodied in the language. Nor could any man set about a scheme with comfort until he had satisfied himself in some manner or other that the gods were favorable to it. End of section 20. Recording by Colleen McMahon.